0: I want to remind you uh, this evening we're going to be um, gathering here again for a hymn sing, and then following the hymn sing, we're going to have a uh, dessert potluck. And so we would love for you to join us. Uh, we haven't done this in like three years, is that right? It's been about three years since we did um, the hymn sing together, and so uh, it's a great joy. Uh, we have the hymnals here, and you get to pick your favorite hymns, and we sing them together. So. Um, please come and join us this evening at 6.30. Uh, We'll begin here in the sanctuary. This morning, we are going to be continuing our study through the book of Esther. We're going to be looking at um, Esther chapter 3, verses 5 through 15. Go ahead and turn there. Reading the text, uh, we might be tempted to think that today's um, text is mundane compared to previous texts, and some of you may be like, good. Um, Yeah thank goodness. Um, But I hope what we find is that there's much here that we can and should learn from. And so go ahead and turn there, and then if you're able, please stand and follow along as I read chapter 3 of Esther, beginning with verse 5. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, so as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pur, that is, they cast lots, before Haman day after day. And they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed, that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and an edict according to all that Haman commanded was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, "...young and old, women and children, in one day, the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly and by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion." Pray, Father, thank you for your word. You're so good and gracious to us, Lord, and we ask that you would pour out your grace as we look at your word together now. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Okay, so remember from last week that the king had promoted Haman... And that he had commanded that everyone bow to give honor, pay homage to Haman. And Mordecai refused to bow. And the only thing that we know from the text and that they know is that it has something to do with Mordecai being a Jew. And so today in the text, we have Haman's response to Mordecai's rebellion. Verse 5, when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. Now, Haman isn't responding to the fact that Mordecai isn't obeying the king's command. The fact that the king had promoted Haman and commanded that everyone bow to him and pay honor. Haman's not concerned about the disobedience to the king. Haman is concerned about his own honor, not the honor of the king here. He sees that Mordecai won't bow to him and won't honor him. And how does he respond? It says that he's filled with fury. Verse 6 But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, so as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. Now, that first line of verse 6 is a window into the mind and heart of Haman and who he is. He disdained or he scorned the idea of limiting his revenge. He hated the idea that he could only punish Mordecai for this offense against him. It It was outrageous to him that he It was so outrageous to him that he needed more to satisfy his wrath. And so he sought to destroy all of the Jews. You might think as you read verse 6, that's a bit of an overreaction, Haman. And you'd be right, it is very much so an overreaction. But it's not the first overreaction that we see in this book or have seen in the story of Esther. The reaction here of Haman to Mordecai and his refusal to honor him as he longed to be honored is similar to that of Ahasuerus to Vashti. A personal offense results in overreaction and seeking to get even. A personal offense becomes a national event in both of these circumstances. Now, maybe you have experienced this kind of overreaction in your life, maybe as a victim of it or an offender, not becoming a national event, but an overreaction. Overreacting to the to an offense of a child. Overreacting to the offense of a coworker or a spouse. I think of how someone will get offended by something, and then that offense will result in anger and then the silent treatment. What is that doing? What's the point? What's the purpose of the silent treatment? It's an attempt to punish an individual and probably others because someone was offended. Someone got their feelings hurt, or something was said that they didn't like. And so the response is, I'm going to give the silent treatment, and then not only are you affected, but others are affected outside of that. Here in the text, Haman decided that his honor had been so impugned that only a total genocide of the Jewish people could satisfy the trespass, could satisfy his wrath. Now, for us, even even though we may not desire to physically kill anyone, it could be that, that our anger burns within us like Haman's did. And we murder those who disrespect us with our thoughts. Consider these encouragements and commands from Scripture. Psalm 86 verse 15 says, But you, O Lord are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Our God is a God who is slow to anger. And He calls us to reflect His character. As disciples of Jesus, we are called to reflect His character to this world. Proverbs 14, 29, whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who is, has a hasty temper exalts folly. Haman is certainly not a man of great understanding. He's prideful and he's foolish. Proverbs 15, verse 18, a hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. Proverbs 29, a man of wrath stirs up strife, and one given to anger causes much transgression. Isn't that what's happening in the story here? But there is a better way that God calls us to. James 1, verses 19 and 20, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Why? Because, he says, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Ever. Ever. The anger of man never produces the righteousness of God. It's pride that directs Haman. Pride that leads him to make these decisions. And pride that causes him to respond in anger when things don't go his way. Proverbs 16 verse 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. That verse in Proverbs is absolutely true as it pertains to Haman. He he may seem to be on top of the world literally right now, but his pride is headed for destruction. And so we ought to evaluate here, pride is deceitful. It's a liar. I've said this before, but it's it's hard to speak about pride. Because most often, those of us who struggle with pride, especially the pride of Haman, the pride that results in fury when honor is attacked, when things don't go our way, people who struggle with pride like that can't hear when you're talking about pride. Their defense mechanism is set to, well, this is about someone else. And I, can, I can think of a few people Tony is talking about right now, some in the row near me. But we, we have to truly evaluate our own hearts Paul writes to the Philippians in chapter 2, verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Do nothing, not a single thing, from selfish ambition or conceit. Haman is directed by his pride. He's led by his pride. He's doing everything from selfish ambition and conceit. And he's certainly counting himself more significant than others. Let's continue through the text today. Verse 7, in the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pur, that is, they cast lots before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. They cast Lots to determine the day and the month when this terrible edict will take place. The word "pur" there refers to the practice of casting lots. It was done by means of small stone dice. Dice. The word "pur" is where "purim," the festival "purim," comes from. It occurs here and several times in chapter nine of. Esther, but it's not found in the Bible anywhere outside of the book of Esther. But the concept of casting lots most certainly is in other parts of the Bible. In fact, in Proverbs 16.33, it says, the lot is cast in the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Rolling dice, casting lots is in and of itself just chance. It's what we would say is the flip of a coin. Now, these people didn't believe that it was. They certainly considered it to be a way to determine things. They did it purposefully. But we know from Scripture that God is bigger than chance. The title of our series through Esther is Provocative Providence. In all of the messy and provocative parts of this story, there is clear evidence of God's providence, that God is working, He is doing His will in the midst of all of this mess. And this verse is absolutely one evidence to that. They roll dice, they cast lots. But that random act is controlled by a providential God. It's every decision is from the Lord, and so there's something happening here beyond Haman. Even as he uses this means, God is using this means to bring about his purpose. God is determining the outcome of the lot's cast. It is to take place, it says, exactly 11 months from the time the decree was written. That's no coincidence. One commentator explains, the Purim festival celebrates the chance, fate, and luck of the drawing of the lot and the casting of the die, ultimately in their favor, despite the intention of Haman, the rule of law, the structure of society, and the apparent hopelessness of their circumstances. God chooses these very means in order to accomplish their deliverance. Clear evidence of God's grace is that while Haman began scheming during the first month of the year, the massacre, because of the lots being cast and where they fell, was scheduled for the 12th month, 11 months later. Now, in case you are hearing this and you're thinking of taking up this means of making decisions, maybe in your home things are tense when it comes to decision time and you're like, we don't know what to do or I don't know what to do, and so... Maybe this is a way that we can uh, make decisions easier. We'll just kind of roll some dice, and who knows how to read the dice and know what that means, but we're going to give it a shot. Maybe we'll flip a coin, and it's every decision is from the Lord, so we can do things this way, and we know that whatever happens when we flip the coin, if it's heads, we pay the bills. If it's tails, we don't pay the bills. We know it's from the Lord. Before you consider that as an option, the last time that lots are cast that we see in the scriptures is in Acts chapter 1, verse 26, and it's done to decide who will replace Judas. And then what happens immediately after that? The coming of the Holy Spirit happens immediately after that. And from that point on, we see nothing about casting lots in the Scriptures. And so I would contend to you that maybe that means something, (laughs) that we don't live by that kind of chance any longer, but when we're filled with the Spirit, we seek to be guided by the Spirit, and we entrust ourselves to a God who is faithful and directs us through the Spirit just as He promised that He would. So don't flip coins to make decisions, okay? Verse eight, then Haman said to king Ahasuerus, there's a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people and they do not keep the king's laws so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. So Haman takes his plan to the king. His presentation to the king is vague and full of half-truths. It's not clear why the king would see the dispersion of the Jews as undesirable in and of itself. That was true of other cultures as well. But Haman leads with that as a reason. The word for law there means custom or practice. And it's probably what is meant here in the text. Their customs and practices are different than ours. That's true of most, if not all, cultures when they come together. It's a beautiful representation of God's good creation. And Haman says that that they do not keep the king's laws. Now, maybe he's referring just to Mordecai there and using that as a platform. We're not told. But it's strange and, and ironic that Haman includes here it is not to the king's prophet to tolerate them. When the very last conspiracy against the king was uncovered by Mordecai and the message delivered by Esther, two of these people that he's saying it's not to your prophet to have them around. It continues in verses 10 and 11. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadath. Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, and the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. I skipped verse 9. Let's do it. Let's do verse 9. If it pleases the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasury. Now, this is an enormous amount of money that he offers. Now, it's possible that he offers this extravagant amount as compensation for the loss that would happen of future tribute that the Jews would have paid into to the taxes, if they were alive. But he's asking that they not be alive. Now, is this saying that Haman thinks that this is how much the Jews are worth to the king? Probably not. But it is saying this. This is how much it was worth to Haman to slaughter the Jews. That amount, 10,000 talents, is estimated to be between half and two-thirds of the Persian Empire's entire annual tax revenue. It's an enormous amount. And then verses 10 and 11, he gives the signet ring. And that signet ring will give Haman the authority to seal the edict against the Jews in the king's name. He gives away the ring, he gives away his executive power to the one identified as the Agagite the enemy of the Jews, the avenger of personal vendetta. He's handing the matter over to Haman. Places, resources, people. You notice that the king says to him, to do to them as it seems good to you. You consider that. For Haman, destruction Genocide is what seems good. Do to them what seems good to you. Verse 12. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the thirteenth day of the first month, and an edict according to all that Haman commanded was written to the king's satraps and to the governors and over all the provinces, to the officials, of all the peoples, to every province in its own script, and every people, in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Now, there's significance to the date here. It explains that the edict was written down and sealed on the eve of the Passover. So, as the Jews are preparing to celebrate God's act of deliverance in their distant past, a present threat to their survival is taking place. In verses 13 and 14, The language there emphasizes the intensity, the totality, and the speed of the destruction. The edict is sent out 11 months before it was to take effect. Now, this would give plenty of advance notice. One historian historian estimated that it would take three months for a message to travel to all parts of the empire, and it is all-inclusive. It's sent to all the king's provinces and applies to all Jews, young and old, women and little children. And it means total massacre. And when they're done killing, even Jewish goods are to be plundered. And that might be an incentive, right? It may be an incentive to others that that, that says to them, you can make yourselves rich. Kill the Jews and take what is theirs as your own. verse 15, the couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel, and the king and Haman sat down to drink. But the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. The contrast here is great. The king and Haman resumed their normal activity of drinking as if nothing out of the ordinary has happened, but others are not delighting. Whereas the king and Haman settle back into their normal routine of self-indulgence, as if, if things are just going on as normal, the inhabitants of the city, most certainly the Jewish population, are bewildered, they are perplexed, they're thrown into confusion cannot even imagine how terrifying it would be to hear these words, that in 11 months, your neighbors are going to slaughter you by law. Pride is a terrible thing. It's no wonder that the Bible tells us that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Pride leads to chaos and confusion. It leads to hurt and pain certainly what's taking place here in the text. And so, what can we learn about God from this text? First, we begin to see in this text how God is absolutely in control in the midst of confusing circumstances. The lot was cast, but God controls the decision. And we're going to find that he is not going to allow this story to end in the destruction of his people. He reigns over all of it. And honestly, that might be hard for you to deal with. It might be hard for you to be okay with that, to try and reconcile how God can be in control in the midst of really awful things that are happening That doesn't mean he is a puppet master who is robotically controlling Ahasuerus to kidnap those girls or controlling Haman to rage and seek revenge. Rather, he's working in the midst of the awful to bring about his ends. Not only that, he writes a better story. He writes a better story than we do. Haman, as as I mentioned earlier, needed more to satisfy his wrath than simply punishing Mordecai. It wasn't enough for him because his honor was that serious, or or to put it better, he was that self-absorbed. He's prideful and he's foolish, but God's worth is infinitely greater than Haman's. And his wrath is so intense against sin that he needed more than any one person can give to satisfy it. But instead of making the decision that Haman makes, instead of killing us all, he came to earth as a man and received the punishment himself. That's who Jesus is the Son of God in the flesh, the one who comes to take the punishment for our dishonor of Him. And He's the example for us, so that we flee from the ways of Haman, not just his desire to murder, but what led to that, to flee from the pride of Haman. Again Philippians 2:3, do nothing. From selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. That text goes on to explain how Jesus is our example in that. We look at at Philippians 2 a lot here. If you're new here, we look at Philippians 2 a lot. I mention it a lot in my sermons. Partly because I think it reflects our values as a church and because we want that culture here at Cornerstone. And so as we consider the pettiness of pride today and where it leads, I want to read Philippians 2, 3 through 8 to lead us into the Lord's Supper. The king gives this willingly to Haman to do whatever he pleases, to slaughter, and it highlights his pride. Our king comes and gives of himself to lay down his life and as as an example for us. Philippians chapter 2, and let's listen to this prayerfully as we prepare for the Lord's Supper. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray, Lord, we thank you and we praise you for your goodness and your grace that is so clearly seen in your Son, Jesus. You had every right to treat us the way that Haman treats Mordecai and the Jewish people. We dishonored you. We did not bow to you and give you the honor that you rightly deserve. And instead of reacting and responding as Haman does in our text, you sent your son who humbled himself and took the dishonor and shame willingly upon himself, and took the suffering of your wrath willingly upon himself to heal us, to make us right, to make us humble, to save us. We praise you for that, Lord, and even as we go into a time where we take the bread and we take the cup, We seek to remember you rightly and we seek to honor you rightly. We pray that you would help us. That you'd be glorified in our hearts as we do this. In Christ's name, amen.